What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is keyboard player, composer, and producer with a brand new album called Shapes and Shades, Michael Lewis Aubert. Mike, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Happy to finally have you. We've been talking about getting you on for a long time. I want to get into some of your work as a touring piano and keyboard player, a producer, and your new album. But before we go there, let's just get to know you a little. Can you tell us about growing up as a young musician in a musical household in Oakland? I know your dad was a touring and recording keyboard player, and your brothers are also musical. Yeah, for sure. What did that look like for you? Yeah, my dad, uh, Phil Auberg, he's a keyboardist, songwriter, solo artist himself. He played for... uh, huge amount of groups and sessions in the 1970s and 80s for Peter Gabriel, the Doobie Brothers, um, very, a, lot of, a lot of different groups. And then he was on this label called Wyndham Hill in the 80s. And uh, I would go to a lot of their shows and watch him play and watch him practice. Some of my earliest memories are just kind of sitting with him at the piano as like a little kid and just pounding out notes and stuff like that. So that was a huge influence on me growing up. But I'd I'd say uh, my mom's influence was even, it was as equal, even though she wasn't a professional musician. She was uh, a music, she majored in music history at Mills. And the reason my family moved to Oakland was so that she could go to Mills. And then I was born here and raised in Oakland. And she had a crazy record collection, was just real musical and, and was good at describing music as we were listening to it and thinking about it. And uh, in high school, when I really started practicing and getting into playing uh, Black American music, also known as jazz, would go through her record collection. And that's really what kind of started me on my path of becoming uh, who I am today, was going through the records and listening to them a huge amount and uh, trying to play along with them and figuring out what was happening. So that those were like the main key things with my dad and my mom. And I have two very musical brothers who play music. I have a record with my younger brother, uh, Danny James. We have a record called Pear it's, that's also out. And am I right that you also had a kind of a family band back in the day when you were around that high school age? Yeah, me and my older brother, Sean, we had a punk rock band uh, called the Masked Men. And uh, we would play like Gilman and all the, you know, we did radio shows and little house parties and um, opening up for whatever band we could we could get on in, in high school. At the same time, I had a another band. I was in a lot of bands in high school. So I had another band. Um with my brother Steve Hogan called A Natural Blend, and we would play like Jeffrey's Inner Circle in Oakland and uh, Festival of the Lake and uh, all these different little Oakland things. So I had a, I ran the whole gamut. I did also events, and I had a my first gig in high school was at uh, this place called The Bird Cage, which was a little dive bar on Telegraph with this older musician named Robert Porter, uh, who was uh, the the teacher of uh, Ambrose Hack and Moosery, who I still play with, a phenomenal trumpet player, and Jonathan Finlayson, another f- phenomenal trumpet player. And 
uh, I learned a lot being on this $50 gig a week, uh, playing all the wrong stuff. And they, they, uh, encouraged me by telling me that it was wrong <laughs> what I was playing. Um, so yeah, uh, had a lot of experiences in high school and, uh, then also got on with this guy, Josh Jones, who was, who is a phenomenal drummer who played with, uh, Don Cherry was in the Peter Affelbaum group for years and, uh, Omar Sosa and stuff. And, he taught me a whole bunch of things uh, as I was playing with him in high school and and a little bit into my 20s, too. Before your 20s, you were also a product of the Berkeley High Jazz Band. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that experience. I mean, you've mentioned Ambrose and some other people who've gone through the Berkeley High Jazz Band. But I'm wondering if you can like kind of bring us back there. What was that experience like? Because the Berkeley High Jazz Band at that point was nationally and even internationally award-winning and I know part of your experience in high school was just practicing all the time, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'd wake up before school and practice. I'd practice during school. I'd practice after school. So that was like my thing when I was really getting into it in my sophomore and junior year of high school. I would practice as much as I could, really, and really push myself to practice as much as I could and learn songs, practice technique, work on classical music, uh, listen to as much music as possible and go see it live as much as possible. Uh, and at Berkeley High School, it was just an, another opportunity to play more and to meet more musicians that were kind of like-minded. I actually went with my buddy, uh, Dana Stevens, another uh, Berkeley High. Uh, he's a saxophonist and uh, actually multi-read player, but uh, he's on the record as well. Uh, we auditioned for Berkeley High together, like we went together and auditioned for it and got in and uh yeah it was cool i got to go to montreux jazz fest and north sea jazz fest with berkeley high um, in my senior year and it was a blast it was like my first like international touring experience playing on the road and traveling and stuff like that so was there ever a point that you like made a decision that you wanted to be a professional musician that that's how you wanted to earn your living when you got older or was that just like part of who you were yeah definitely probably elementary school i decided i wanted to do to do music and just i knew i wanted to and uh i just kept at it I mean, that's incredible. Most people when they're in elementary school want to be an astronaut or want to, you know, you set your sights and you really spent your school time figuring out how to make that happen. For sure. Um, yeah, I got terrible grades and uh, just was only only focused on music for pretty much my entire high school career. And uh, it's pretty much the same. I'm, I'm more balanced now in terms of I have a family and they get more time than the music kids. So um, in that way, I'm, I'm more of a complete human being these days. But back then was just music 100%. Yeah, in elementary school, I just had a calling to me. I think, uh, as everybody can find, they you find ways to escape stuff in life. And uh, music was an escape for me. I could put on headphones and uh, kind of create my own space. I grew up with uh, two other brothers in one room. And so I never had, I, I just didn't ever feel like I had a, a whole lot of space to myself to, to kind of carve out a place. So headphones was a good way to like get into something, to get into music and to, uh, create space for myself and to kind of be transported by music to a different location 
and a different feeling than whatever I was feeling at the time. And once I got more into music, it could be a technical thing too. I could listen to what the drums were doing. And rather than just being transported emotionally, I can be, I can kind of focus in on what's actually happening. Like the, what the drums are playing, what the bass is playing, what the keyboards are playing. I, I would kind of use the John Coltrane way that I heard of in high school, which was he would listen to the song, same song five or six times and he would focus on one instrument at a time while he was like for the whole listen through rather than just kind of letting it hit you and feeling it and kind of picking out things as they come to you, really focusing in on one element at a time and re-listening. And uh, so music is like that. There's a lot of different things you can do with one song. You can listen to it in a lot of different ways. You can let it transport you. You can get into the technical parts of it. So I've been very happy to you be able to have music as a, as a way to take me places, literally and figuratively. Well, let's get into some of that literal. We talked about elementary school. We talked about high school and some of your early gigs in the Bay. Not long after high school, you toured with Boots Riley and the Coup. You wrote for and played with Guapale and toured with her. And you produced for Zion. I, I know some of those are some of your like first little bit bigger credits. If I remember correctly, the Coup was your first touring gig. Yeah, actually, my first my first touring gig my first touring gig was actually with uh, the San Francisco Mime Troupe, which uh, I. An, an older keyboardist friend of mine, Dred Scott, who lives in New York nowadays, he had recommended me for it, and uh, and I went and did that with them. The coup I had done some local gigs with and played on their records. I actually worked with uh, Boots Riley uh, with his younger brother Manuel on music first. That's that's kind of how I got started working with Boots, as I was working with his younger brother on music. And then, um, then I started working with Boots. Some he would pick me up, and we'd go to the studio and and work on music. And I still work with Boots to this day. I have a couple of production credits and writing on the new TV series. Uh, I'm a Virgo, and uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, touring with Boots was was an experience. And uh, I actually toured with uh, my friend Thomas Bridgen, the drummer. Uh, he's on my album as well. We, we toured with Boots together. Yeah, I did a lot of touring at a young age. Uh, Boots, lo- local groups, but then uh, also joined with uh, Layla Hathaway in my early 20s and um, did some gigs with Fantasia, the singer. And yeah, quite a bit of touring in my early 20s. I still tour some with Derek Hodge and uh, kind of slowed down my touring life so that I can be a, a family man, but am trying to focus more on my own music these days. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you, and we're maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but you've basically been off the road from touring for quite a few years now. I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how having a kid and wanting to be present and there for your kid, like how that impacted decisions to stay home and focus on music kind of in a different way than you had been before that. Yeah. Well, you know, when we, I don't know if anybody else has had kids out there that's listening, but when you have a kid, it kind of reorganizes your priorities in a way that you didn't anticipate when you planned on having a child and things change and you, and you start having to shift your focus uh, inward to your family and some musicians don't do that. They just kind of keep doing their musician thing and are out on the road. Um, 
but I was actually out on the road when my child was around two and uh, they were having some issues at home and I wasn't there. I was in Japan and uh, I wanted to come back and I just needed to come back. And uh, that kind of, after that, tr that trip, um, this was around 10 years ago, I decided that I didn't really want to take on the same kind of touring schedule anymore. And that being said, I still do some tour uh, touring. I've been uh, all around the country this year and um, been to New York several times already this year. So, but it's not the same as your average touring musician who's spending six to seven months out of the year on the road. I'm doing little spot dates here and there. So I still get out there and have some visibility. But um, uh, yeah, trying to focus in on my family life at home. But I'm also trying to be just more like locally based. For a long time, I was more interested in doing stuff different from um your average Bay Area musician, and this is not to put anybody down in any kind of way. I just didn't want to show up on the local scene as much. I wanted to be seen more as a national artist, a national sideman. And uh, nowadays, I think with the way the world is, it's uh, it might be more important for me to be here in the Bay and to be given back and to uh, create uh, to create more of a scene. Uh, with my gifts and, and help and help out where I can and bring up some more young musicians and just kind of share a little bit of my, more of my experience with, uh, like with the local music scene. Yeah. So I want to go back in time one more time and then we'll bring it up to the present a little bit more. One of the songs that you were involved in writing and maybe the most famous song that you've been involved in writing is Closer by Guapale. That song started out local and then really became a global hit around the world. I'm wondering if you can maybe reflect on that song a little bit, just to the point, like, was there a moment that you realized that you made something really big and, and how that impacted you? For sure. Um, yeah, there were a couple key moments. Um, at the time that I made that, I was, uh, living with this guy, DJ Fuse and, uh, DJ Namani, who Namani was uh, Guapale's older brother, and uh, I was working on production of it. I was working with the Coup and Zion I, these these local uh, Bay Area hip hop groups, and from working with them, me and me and Amp Live from Zion I would just constantly get together and work on music just for whatever. Like we didn't have a plan for it. It could go for Zion I's album. It could go for a different artist's album. We were just working on stuff. And uh, we were influenced at that time by uh, Hidden Beach Recordings, which was this label in uh, Philly, which is kind of where Jill Scott came out of, Jazzy Jeff. Uh, shout out to Jazzy Jeff. And they kind of did this thing where it was like hip hop production, but kind of live. It was in the 2000s when the genre Neo Soul, I, we didn't like that name at the time, Neo Soul, but um, that's kind of how it's known as. So, that yeah, that song, we made it just being influenced by what was happening at the time. We wanted to play it live through. I just kind of was playing around on the Fender Roads at the studio. And uh, then I arrived at something and Amp was like, oh, that one is tight, let's use that. And so that's kind of how the song got started. I came up with that keyboard part that's on the song. And uh, then, then he kind of started jamming on the MPC, which is a drum machine and got the drums going. 
And so we did the drums and the keyboards, I think, at the same time. And from there, we just started adding layers. Like I played a guitar layer, a string layer. He did the key bass. And I think we brought in one other guitarist to play on it. And at first, um, we played the song for a whole bunch of different people. It was maybe going to be a Zion I song, but he passed the, the main rapper, Steve, Steve Gaines, soon be rest in peace. He uh, passed on it. And uh, then Guapale came and, and rocked it in the studio. I think it was like a half hour session for her vocal. But uh, yeah, when that song came out, it was uh, it was one of those build up things. We would go to KMEL and we would try to get them to play it. I would go with her brother. He was really the, uh, the key in terms of getting that song out to larger audiences. He really worked hard at uh, hustling and getting the song into other markets. And the main market that we broke was KMEL. We were one of the first independent artists to get into that uh, corporate playlist thing. I think the next song was like uh, Keep the Sneak after that. Like it was it was us that kind of opened the door for some more Bay Area music to get played that wasn't on a major label that to get on these playlists on uh, KMEL. And uh, the moment that I realized it all changed, I was taking the bus. I was on the, the 72 on San Pablo. I was 20 years old. And uh, the song was now third week at number one. And I was like, oh, my life's about to change. I'm no longer going to be on the bus. So, yeah, that was one of them. I remember that moment being on the bus and being like, I think this bus stuff is over. Uh, <laughs> so the song has gone number one. And I own a big percentage of the song. So that's that's how I still get paid from the song. So I'm very thankful for Guapole and her team and um, Amp Live. And, uh, yeah, we still all talk and work on music. I got new music coming out with Guapale, actually. They're just finalizing everything right now. That's super excited. Uh, I'm ex I'm excited to check it out. So you've mentioned quite a few of the artists you've worked with. Guapale, Boots Riley, Layla Hathaway. I know you play with Derek Hodge. You play with Chris Dave. One thing we haven't talked about yet is that you are a white musician often in the worlds of playing black music and you mentioned black american music you and i have spent a lot of time talking about this i'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit what is it like as a white man being aware of the role that you play in mostly black bands black musical spaces playing black music how are you like aware of your own presence and are there specific ways you approach a band with that dynamic in mind yeah, definitely. I think for me, I just need to be humble and be thankful and grateful. And in general, I try to live in that space in all facets of my life to live in a, a grateful place for all the experiences that I've had. I'm thankful for all these bands that have invited me to play like and to be the kind of lone, lone white dude in the band for Layla Hathaway, for Guapale, for Derek Hodge, for for Chris Dave, I've been pretty much the only white guy on stage for a lot of these groups that I've played in, uh, besides my brother, Errol Cooney. We, we're usually the two white guys in the groups that we've played in. I think there's a lot of times in American history where black American music, but just kind of like, like I'm not that person that uses the word jazz or um, all these kind of created genres. That's a larger conversation, but 
for me, just being in it, I just try to give respect where respect is due. There's these people who put their lives on the line to create this music, and they had to deal with a huge amount of hardship to create it. Like just people like Duke Ellington, who had to create their own car, their own train car that would go on the back of trains so that they could live because it was too hard to try to travel the country or find accommodation, hotel accommodations while you were touring at the time for a band of that size. So they would they they would have their own car that they would add to it. And, and that way Duke and, and Billy Strayhorn and some of the key members had places to be. So it's like people put a whole lot had to deal with a whole lot to create the music that influenced me in the first place. So I just try to always acknowledge that and realize that I'm coming from a place of privilege and uh, really thankful and grateful. And just to give respect to the creators of the music. And and we got to know that this music is always marketed and uh, it's been taken and watered down, whitewashed and resold and repackaged. And uh, we got to listen to the real and we can't, uh, we can't get into the fake music. We got to always go back to the creators of the music and uh, give respect to them and, and have those be the things that influence us rather than the, the whitewashed versions of them. And you mentioned earlier Black American music. You said it's a larger discussion. I'm wondering if we could at least touch on it a little bit deeper. The The use of that phrase, like part of it, right, is identifying rather than saying jazz black american music specifically refers to where that music is coming from why do you use that phrase i use that phrase mostly out of respect of the artists that came before me that did not like the term jazz like coltrane did not like the term jazz he didn't use it miles davis did not like the term he miles davis was the first to kind of talk about it being a black american music um Uh, Mingus talked about it. Duke Ellington talked about this phrase. And basically, I think the term was was coined by white critics to um, basically market the music and put it into a category that could be packaged and sold to white people. And um, and just it's a way of uh, compartmentalizing things that capitalism does. They say, okay, we're going to put this here and this gets sold to these people and this age group and, and we market it like this. And we need things to fit into this box. And that and then if it fits into this box, then we can sell it like this. And uh, that, that's kind of, it still happens very much so nowadays. I think we have so many sub-genres and genres of music these days. And with things like Spotify and Spotify playlists, we have artists who are actually trying to like kind of get their music sounding a certain way to kind of get onto a playlist or get into this kind of um, format. And... I just think we've only been kind of recording music for for just a little over a hundred years. It's like humans create all these constructs to, uh, and rules around stuff. And, uh, our minds are really creative and we're able to actually, all my big influences are people that went outside of, of what was happening at the time. Miles Davis, Stevie Wonder, Funkadelic, uh, Sun Ra, Duke Ellington, Coltrane, all these people who went outside the the realm of what was typically happening and pushed pushed past that, and uh, these are our he- these are my heroes, and they all hate the term jazz. So I'm not, I'm definitely not going to use it out of respect for them, but also it, it was a kind of a term that uh, described like whorehouses in New Orleans, and uh, and it was like okay, we're going to go check out this jazz music, J A S S, 
that was playing at this house of ill repute. And uh, the music, musicians just had a gig. It wasn't just specific to that place. It was just the music being played at the time. And, and it happened to take place there and at other places. So uh, it's just a kind of like a disrespectful term. And, uh, and it involves a lot of racial history of the U.S. So that's why I don't use it. Um, and I also just kind of look at the lineage of black music as all connected from Duke Ellington to James Brown to Jay Dilla. Um, we got to connect the, connect the pieces and look at it as a legacy that uh, influences all pop music around the, wor- the world globally more than any other music that exists. It's the, it's the music that influences all the other music. Well, let's get there finally around the way that some of that music has influenced you. You have a brand new album out. It came out this week. It's called Shapes and Shades. Um, You've been working on this record for quite a few years. I'm wondering if you can walk us through the process you've gone through from kind of from start to finish with the album, maybe some of the folks you collaborated with. Yeah, um, well, it's definitely been a work in progress. Some of the sessions go kind of way back. Like I had a session with uh, Justin Brown, the drummer for Thundercat and Elena Penderhughes, amazing flute player, singer, songwriter. She's she's phenomenal if you haven't checked her out. Uh, We had a session in Berkeley um, even before the pandemic, and I was sitting on the session, just hadn't done anything with it. And uh, around 2020, there were pandemic time. I, I think I didn't really have the means to make an album. I think technology caught up and I was able to afford uh, the tools to make the album that I heard in my head. And before that, I wasn't able to. Like, I wasn't able to actually uh, just go and make my own album. I would have to rent studio time, all this, uh, to, to make what I wanted to hear in my head. And, Typically, I've done that. I've just bought my own studio time and and kind of those financial pieces are what held it back. But actually having like a, a home that where I could house the equipment I needed and and put and record and, and do all those things enabled the album, able to afford a computer that could hold 50 tracks with effects on it and, and stuff like that. It's like technology caught up and I caught up and was able to get enough equipment to make the album I needed. So. I started with those sessions and then I had my own ideas and I started sending them out during the pandemic, have people add drums to it, add bass to it and just, uh, just developed songs and brought them all together. And, um, I'm really thankful for all the musicians who, con- who contributed and gave me extra discount. Some people played for free, uh, Thomas Bridge and Derek Hodge is just on the love for very thankful Corey Fonville, another great, great drummer just were real generous with their gifts and uh just played on the record actually every single person who played on it was super generous so uh really thankful for all of them um got a lot of special guests guapalades on there of course that's like i've been working with her for forever but Derek hodge the bass player on blue note joel ross vibraphone on blue note Corey fonville from many groups butcher brown uh, thomas bridgen the legend justin brown on drums just a huge amount of special guests. Got two uh, like super phenomenal guitarists, Errol Cooney and Charles Altura, are guesting on there. Uh, Elena Pinderhughes. Um, also got another vocalist, Kevin Allen, uh, who formerly known as Irk the Jerk, on there guesting, and he, he killed it. So really thankful for everybody just lending their gifts to the process. 
I'm super excited about the album. We are going to listen to a little bit of it later on, but I'm wondering if in your words, you can try to illustrate what, what parts of your album might sound like for folks that really aren't familiar with you, even as much as instrumentation, but also like earlier in our conversation, you were talking about listening to music has part of the process with that can transport you somewhere and that can be an emotional process. Wondering if you can tell us a little bit about where your music takes you or maybe where you hope it takes other people. Yeah, I hope it just draws people in and I hope it paints a different picture for every single person, which is kind of what music does. Like everybody gets a different uh, painting from stuff and I hope it doesn't take everybody to the same place. I hope it takes people to different places because there's a lot of information in there. There's a lot of great drummers. There's a lot of me playing a whole bunch of instruments. I think I play 80% of everything on the record and everybody else is guesting, like kind of like features, almost like a hip hop record. Like I'm featuring people on tracks, but um, yeah, uh, like I said, I'm a student of black American music, but I also have a million other influences like uh, Brian Eno, um, avant-garde composers. I don't, I don't just have one bag and I really, uh, take all these things that I've listened to over the years and I filter them. I'm, I'm the filter and I'm the, the, the sound. So it really embodies me. I'm, I play a lot of analog synthesizers on the record from the Prophet 5 to the Fender Rhodes to the Oberheim OV8. These are all real technical terms, but all analog, everything, drums, drum machines, bass, guitars, everything the computer is it's like a digital collage using analog sources that's kind of the way i look at it i use the computer to create a collage of all these analog sources that i'm using um you know try to play through stuff but i like to also use the computer as an instrument and edit it up so it's not like uh, your typical acoustic jazz album it has a a real modern take uh, with some some of the best musicians that are out there and yeah, I hope it takes people to a place they haven't heard before. I don't think it super sounds like a lot of stuff out there. Um, there's definitely a lot of backbeat in the music and uh, there's odd meters too. So, you know, you might have to count or feel it. Actually, you shouldn't count. You should just feel it. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I try not to make it too hard. I want, I want people to actually be able to feel it and enjoy it. Um, like, and that's not purposefully that's how i hear the music i just kind of uh hear stuff a little bit more simple in my head than um maybe some of the current music that's being written out there in new york and in la so yeah i try not to have it be show-offy but i want it to be vibey i want people to feel it and and to get into a place from it um there's a lot of a lot of keyboards and a lot of stretching and uh, a lot of transitions too. It, it goes a lot of places. I tried to connect everything and have one song bleed into the next and just kind of have it be a journey from, from start to finish. And where can people find the album and how can people follow your work? So you guys can find my music. Uh, the best way right now is to go to michaellewis.bandcamp.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-L-O-U-I-S dot bandcamp dot com. And uh, for me, I'm not streaming the record yet. I might stream it later in the year, but uh, for independent artists, having your stuff on streaming 
it, it's it's great for people to access your music, but you don't see a lot of income from it. And I want to recoup some costs. So right now for people to actually like listen to my music and support it, go to bandcamp.com, Michael Lewis, Shapes and Shades, and uh, purchase the record. You can listen to it there too if, if you just want to check it out. You can buy it digitally. And I also have cassettes for those hipsters that still have a cassette player and, and want to get and want to have a physical representation of the album. Um, yeah, and you can also check me out on Instagram. I put up a lot of new ideas. I kind of put uh, little tracks up there and ideas for music up there all the time. New music um, that's uh, not, not on this record. If you just want to kind of check out my style of things and that's uh tiger's view at instagram uh tigers t-i-g-e-r-s underscore view v-i-e-w v-i-e-w at uh instagram and uh i put a lot of new ideas on there you can also see like where i have gigs coming up and stuff in my stories usually uh, on instagram great mike we're gonna have to leave it there thank you so much for joining us and spending the time Thank you for having me. Appreciate you. Yes, sir. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Jesse Strauss, and this has been Resistance in Residence with this week's featured artist, keyboard player, composer, and producer with a brand new album called Shapes and Shades, Michael Lewis Auberg.